This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Andy Darer of The Andy Darer Show to revisit Bandwagon-esque by Teenage Fan Club. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me for episode 147 of our third season, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are, uh, we are welcoming, welcoming back on this episode a returning guest. From uh, do you know how long it's been since this guest has been with us? Uh, it was uh, wasn't the summer or maybe early summer? No, it, actually, it was episode eighty six. It's been do the math. That's been sixty episodes. <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah. I didn't realize that. Okay, it, it, it was uh, like that was long, that long ago. Yeah, episode eighty six of uh, two thousand twelve was. Uh, I don't know the exact date, but yeah. So that that was a while ago. And of course, I am speaking of uh, none other than Mr. Mr. Andy Darer of The Andy Darer Show, another fine podcast. And he joined us on uh, 86 for Bob Mold's Copper Blue. And he's back with another (laughs) suggestion. Andy, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, hey, Tim. Hey, Jay. Um, yeah, had a blast last time. And yeah, time flies. I thought that was like spring, but I guess it was last summer, 2012. So. Yeah, it's been a while. I didn't, I, man, that 60 episodes go like uh, like nothing. Almost like one a week. I'm about to celebrate my 100th. I, I take my time with them, though. You guys are more regular. I, I, I take some weeks off here and there. But, uh, yeah, we're doing 100 episodes in November, so just want to thank everybody who's helped out. Uh, you guys, uh, Tim was on my show uh, this spring, I think. Yep. And, yeah, Jay, if you want to come on whenever you're, you're ready. So. Cool. We're, we're yeah, regular. I mean, we, uh, we're like yeah, the we metamucil of uh, podcasts. We're not always good, but we're we're always there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Sounds good. People ask me how, like, if I like to podcast, I say it is the easiest work ever imaginable, and I have a blast doing it. So There you that go. That's true. Yeah. So the album that you brought to the table, as I mentioned in our when we, before we started the show, this is one that's been on our radar for a long time. And we just never got around to it because it's it's really a perfect pick for this podcast and and for our uh, you know listenership. And it's Teenage Fan Club's uh, nineteen ninety one album, Bandwagon Ask. And I'm sure that people are familiar with it. There's some interesting bits and pieces, though, that people might not remember. Andy, what was one of the things that you mentioned before we were talking about this record? Uh, yeah, I, I, ca- I called it uh, unheralded and unloved, um, even though at the turn of 1992, um, for the year of 1991, Spin named it the number one album of 1991. And that's just kind of crazy because you had Nevermind, you got 10, you got uh, Out of Time, you got Loveless, you got so many things. So I did see it was it was uh, released in like November, and that's a good time to re- release an album because it, you're so fresh in all the critics' minds, you know? So that helps get you to the top, too. So. Yeah, this is sort of like if, um, I don't remember the year, I know that there are years in the Oscars where they're like, 
the Godfather lost to this movie, although it didn't. But I know that there are other other years where like people are like, I can't believe this movie didn't win Best Picture and this other movie won, even though that sure. movie is completely fine. But it was like the, the next the movie that didn't win became sort of legendary and you know heralded as a classic of film or something like that. That's sort of this year in terms of spin picking this album. You're up against Loveless, Nevermind, Out of Time, Ten. I mean, those are gigantic albums, and this little Scottish band uh, put out a power pop record, a noisy power pop record, and and were the number one album according to Spin. So it's to add to that that roster. Just I'm looking at the list real fast here. You also have Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger, Smashing Pumpkins, Gish, Metallica, Metallica. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, in terms of like all these records, use your Guns of Roses, use your Illusions one and two. Yeah, you know, it, it, it wow. makes me look at 2013 and be like, "Come on, guys, get your shit right. together." Yeah, I know exactly. It's kind of <laughs> ridiculous. I, it is. I and I always get. I think we talk about this in the show um, from time to time. I have a hard time with the time frame sometimes. Like the years start to blur together, and um, I, it's just always it's always fun to look at these lists and and, and remind yourself that. All these albums came out in '91. I, I I always think of like, uh, this is a span of like you know these records came out between like '90 90 and '94. It's like no, they all came out in '91. It's crazy. Yeah, that's a murderer's row of albums right there. In terms of uh, you got a lot to live up to <laughs> to try to match that year. So I think this would be a good point since we're going back in time to actually revisit uh, briefly Teenage Fan Club's uh, history. History of the band. They formed in Belshill, Scotland in 1989. Uh, Norman Blake, Raymond McGinley, Gerard Love, and Francis McDonald. Uh, there was a rotation of drummers. Brendan O'Hare and pa- Paul Quinn would also play drums, and then Francis McDonald is back in the band playing drums uh, currently. They released nine albums starting in 1990 with a Catholic Education. Then they released The King in 1991, just before Bandwagon-esque. And I guess the story is they basically recorded Bandwagon-esque and then had extra time in the studio. So they banged out a second album and it was going to be released basically as like a fan club issue and they were going to do it at like a cheap version, like a, a prequel album essentially. But Creation Records is like, no, we're just going to put it out as an album. So mm-hmm. while they didn't really want The King to come out as a full-length record, it did before Bandwagon-esque, so... There you go. Um, Bangwagon Ask peaked at number 22 in the UK and number 137 in the US. Uh, their fourth album, 13, came out in 1993. Grand Prix came out in 1995. Songs from Northern Britain in 1997. Howdy in 2000. Words of Wisdom and Hope in 2002. Man Made in 2005. And then they returned um, after five-year hiatus with Shadows in 2010. I uh, want to remind everybody if they want to predict, uh, p- predict if they want to uh, recommend an album for us to review, uh, head on over to request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We got some feedback. Um, I want to chime in, though, before I go to the Facebook feedback that my wife gave feedback on this album. Mm-hmm. And specifically, it, it well, it ties into something that um, Chris. Uh, Chip Copeland said, he said, best concert I, I think I've been I've seen was Teenage Can- Fan Club opening for Radiohead. Well, my wife also saw Teenage Fan Club open for Radiohead on this tour. She saw them at a high school in 
Lorraine, Ohio. <laughs> and <laughs> she said it was one of the worst opening bands she'd ever seen. Um, Wait, yeah, I was going to add that I also saw them on the OK Computer Tour opening up for Radiohead. You said she saw them this early in their career or yeah, in 97? She, she saw them early. <clears throat> and Teenage Fan Club... Well, I don't know if it was for this tour or if, but it was early Radiohead, and she was going to see Radiohead. I'm guessing it was the Creep era, and she saw them, and she said they were noisy and annoying, and it just made me laugh because it's the complete opposite of what Chip said in terms of his best concert that he'd ever seen. <laughs> um, to continue on with what he said, this album makes me appreciate the songcraft more than Nirvana did. Alcoholiday made me realize I needed to break up with my first girlfriend and to not get invested in young love. Jeez. There you go. Uh, Dimitri Dumitri said, it's funny you said that. Oh, well, <clears throat> I got to go to Austin Hall first. He says, I remember how exciting it was when this album came out. A lot of people think Spin Magazine screwed up by giving Bangwagon-esque album of the year from 1991. Dimitri Dumitri says, it's funny you said that, Austin, because Teenage Fan Club toured with Nirvana, and Nirvana being on the same level had an advanced copy of Bandwagon-esque and played it a lot in 1991. And I have read that at the time, Kurt Cobain said he thought the Teenage Fan Club was the best band in the world. And he, he was in love with this record. And then Joe Royland says, uh, Damn, what can I say that Austin didn't already? Great album. They did a cool cover of Madonna's Like a Virgin as a B-side to What You Do to Me, a favorite album of the 90s. Nice. So I, I'm going to lubricate my uh, my pipes here and try to get the uh, the voice back a little bit. So... We've covered the Facebook feedback. We've covered the history. We've ramped this thing up. Andy, you were the person that brought this record to us. So why don't you talk about uh, revisiting this record and your thoughts on it? And um, more importantly, you know, we were talked about where this sort of landed in 1991. Um, there was a power pop movement in the 90s with bands like people like Matthew Sweet and the Posies. Uh, with the more popular end of it, and then there were some of the more underground bands like Velvet Crush and Sloan. Sloan, exactly. <laughs> so, does do you think this record holds up both in terms of being a, a '90s alternative record, but then also sort of a landmark, I would say, power pop record? Yeah, I'd say it's it's more of a power pop record. I don't think it really fits in with the grunge, the whole dark and despair of the early '90s. You know. Um, I kind of missed it the first like uh, way around, and uh, I was a big Britpop guy in the mid '90s, '95, '96, and still I wasn't really uh, you know turned on to it too much. I'd heard things here and there, but I wasn't really a fan. Took for me to uh, get into Big Star, and uh, as it says, a lot of critics call this Big Star's fourth album. Like, mm -hmm. th and they're another unheralded band. They played to audiences of like 100 people a lot. And uh, and these guys also are pretty unheralded the same way when they come to America. You know, they're just opening for people. But, yeah, it's definitely got the power pop feel to it. Um, if, if you're not a big star fan, I would say do the research. They got an awesome movie out now, a documentary about their whole career and uh, how, you know, they really never got their due. Um, Teenage Fan Club did get their due. I mean, they're on David Geffen with uh, Nirvana at the same time. Kurt's a fan. Um but, yeah, at the same t point, you know, you ask a lot of music fans, I don't think they could name one uh, Teenage Fan Club song that was a huge hit, you know? Exactly. Maybe the maybe What You Do To Me, which 
when I went back and started researching it, I found it, it, it actually didn't chart in the U.S., and I always thought of that as being their biggest single. It was actually the concept that charted at number 12 in the U.S. Modern Rock chart back at the and time. And it's a six-minute song. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird. <laughs> it's, I think it's found a place in, in sort of pop culture history as well. Um, it was featured in, in the movie um, Young Adult with uh, Patton Oswalt and uh, Charlie Theron. It has a, sort of a prominent role in that movie in, in terms of the, her character. Um and then in terms of, uh, I guess, the songwriting and the, you know, s- sometimes power pop gets dismissed because it, of the pop element and it's a little bit of the disposable aspect of pop music. Did you find in going back that these songs stood up in the same way? Because I can see where a person might, might take a song like What You Do To Me, which is two minutes long. It's not a very complex song. Um, it's very, it's kind of repetitive, even for the two minutes. And they might dismiss it and say, well, it's just pop music and it's not as relevant in terms of way that, like, Under Nirvana's Nevermind is culturally relevant. Um, agree or disagree? I would agree with that because, um, like, Nirvana bred, like, dozens and dozens of sound-alikes and Teenage Fan Club... I can only name three or four or five sound-alikes, you know, right. Sloan, as I said, and stuff like that. Like the Rembrandts, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, Or Delamitri, you know, that's another one. Stuff like that. But, yeah, it didn't have the cultural prominence, didn't start a fashion like grunge did. Um, but at the same point, I go back and listen to it. I love, you know, 95% of these tracks here. So, Jay, you were familiar with this record, correct? I was. All right, so going back, I don't know how, how recently you had listened to it prior to us uh, digging it out, but what was your what's your take on Bandwagon-esque? Are you back on the bandwagon? <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a record that I remember um, what, about, about when it came out. Um, at the time, I think I was going to the library a lot and, and taking CDs out and like doubling them down to a cassette and... Um, that was the way I was finding new music at the time. And this was a record that, um, you know, I'd heard about and wanted to check out. And I was really intrigued because for me, um, coming from, you know, most of the eighties and sort of that, you know, 1989, 1990 period, um, you know, one of the types of music I really liked was, you know, kind of pop, pop metal kind of, you know what I mean? Like hard rock music mixed with essentially power pop influences so for me a band like this kind of was a 
was a natural transition for me getting more into like alternative music in terms of, you know, the harmonies, you know, I also grew up to listen to a lot of Beatles. So there was a lot of familiarity there in terms of the harmonies and the melodies and just the, the pop hooks. So, um, I remember spending a, quite a bit of time with it then, um, and enjoyed it, uh, on a certain level and I found it really interesting. Um, and, I kind of put it away for a, a long time and, and didn't really go back to it. You know, it would pop up on my radar, you know, as they released 13 and a couple other records, you know, every couple of years, it seemed like they would kind of pop up and then I would remember this record and go back and, and revisit it. But, um, it wasn't until, um, you know, the last several years that it, that it really kind of, um, started to make its way back into, you know, more regular listening. Um, for this review, it's probably the most time I've spent, you know, really focused on the whole record and, and, and trying to pull it apart. Um, I think what's interesting for me, it's one of those records where um, I agree with everything you, you guys have said so far. Um, I think the songwriting in a lot of cases is, you know, it's, it's brilliant. I think the harmonies are um, gorgeous and hooky as hell. Um, I think a song like... Um, what you do to me when you break it down, it's, it's two alternating parts. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing really to it, but they're so hooky and they're so well done that you don't even notice it until you really analyze it. Um, so, you know, to be able to pull that kind of stuff off, um, I appreciate, um, I think the thing though about it that I've struggled with over the years listening to it, and I still struggle with a little bit now is that I find the production, kind of odd when you really when you analyze it and i think it's one of the element that has prevented the album from really becoming like me really absorbing it um because I, I would i would describe this as a bit of a fader for me so i'll put it on and really get into you know the beginnings of songs and i'll you know kind of pay attention here and there but i also find myself kind of fading out on some of the stuff and and I don't think it's the songwriting and I don't think it's the playing. I think it's the production of the record. And as I broke it down, um, when I was listening to it recently, um, it's like the guitars and the vocal and the cymbals and some of the extra instrumentation, like the horns and the clapping, it's all like in the same kind of tinny frequency range. Mm -hmm. I think I find myself like, when you, like you don't get that um i'm thinking of like say the the travis record we reviewed recently where you know it's got somewhat kind of the same elements to it i would say and almost you know songwriting wise is not exactly the same but not you know completely different right. but that album is produced so well that it just keeps pulling you in you know so like an instrument comes in and it just sounds so warm and great and it kind of you know, grabs your ear and you pay attention to that and it kind of pulls you around a little bit and involves you in the, in the, in the mix and in the, in this, um, the overall production and the songs for me, this, it kind of is like, um, I don't know. It's like, it's almost like, it, um, in mono or something. Now I know, I know there's separation there, but it's like, it doesn't have that, like, I don't know, engulfing kind of like draws you in and you know, you really like feel like you're in the middle of the music. It sounds like, distant in a way and i've always found myself in a weird way not able to kind of go the extra i guess step into really absorbing this record and really getting like you know totally into it 
Um, I can see what you're saying about like the dynamics, like you know, with Nirvana, it's loud, soft, loud, you know, or soft, loud, yeah. soft. And this, it's all kind of the same for all yeah. the songs. But I, it, it's its own style too. I mean, Don it, Fleming on production. So what has he? Has he? Do you know what he's done? Yeah, he was in like a band there. called Gumball, and uh, they were in like that movie '91, The Year Punk Broke. You know, yeah. it's a you know the touring movie with Nirvana, Dinosaur Jr., all of them. And uh, yeah, he's gone on to do a couple other things. He's worked with Sonic Youth, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, Gumball's actually pretty good. They had a couple albums in the early '90s on major labels. But I, I can see what you're saying about there's not a lot of contrast in sounds. There's a it's kind of just a steady feeling the whole way through almost. So well, it's kind of produced like a, a shoegaze record would be produced, but they're not a shoegaze band. Yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? Right. So you get this like this very um, chimey, br- almost brittle sounding guitar, and the guitars are very loud. I mean, the bass is there, but it's it's very much about you know those guitars and they're um, kind of washy, and then the cymbals are like up at the front like kind of loud and so you just get like this like layer of like you know washy high high to middle range stuff when you're listening to the record that i think kind of over the course of a record starts to i don't know it, it becomes difficult to pay attention to other aspects of the record because it's so like you know in your in your um your your main view for lack of a better way to describe it yeah i well, totally agree I was going to just chime in a little bit. I think some of that uh, brittle and sort of uh, mid-rangey tinniness um, reminded me a lot of – I was getting on on certain songs, especially like Guiding Star, this Jesus and Mary Chain kind of feel, which Mm -hmm. I didn't really get when I was – I heard this record back in the day. And it didn't really connect with me all that well. And then it wasn't until like the 2000s where I sort of developed more of an appreciation for power pop that I was able to go back and like, okay, now I'm getting this record. Like it's finally starting to make some sense to me. But the thing I didn't pick up back then, which I pick up now is like that noise, but Beach Boy pop, you know, twisted sound of, of to the Jesus and Mary chain. And that's what I... I think they were going for somewhat uh, with the production on this record because that's mm-hmm. what those J- Jesus and Mary Chain records sound like. You know, they they they're a little thin um, and they're a little bit uh, tinny. So it kind of makes sense to me that that's what this sounds like because obviously, in comparison to like when we did that Velvet Crush record, that's a very warm record. There's, you know, and I'm sure that sounds awesome on vinyl, but yeah. it's a different kind of power pop than what this is. And they're not afraid to, like, you know, let the guitars feed back and do a lot of crazy noise. Track two, Satan, is a, a perfect example. It's just two minutes of, like, noisy mm-hmm. feedback, or a minute and a half, I should say. Yeah. Um, and they And they do that throughout the record, adding in, whether it's in, you know, intros of songs or adding it actually into the verses or solos where they're bringing in this element of uh, a little bit of chaos, which Big Star uh, approached, but I think they did it more from a psychedelic uh, angle, especially on mm-hmm. the third album. I don't. They weren't really a noisy band in the same way that Teenage Fan Club is approaching it 
and it's you know I think they're cycle. I think they're also bringing in some Dinosaur Junior. Um, you know that that eighties n- noisy tinny sounding Dinosaur Junior sound. Um, before the they got before Jay Massis refined it for like the you know where you've been and and without a sound albums. Um, so I think those are two big influences on this record, um, especially in the guitar playing. I hear that when he when they do the solos and some of the leads that are going on um, with like the big bends and stuff like that. It reminded me a lot of Jay Massis's playing. Yeah, like another weird put... thing is that uh, it's three different songwriters that all get their own shine at one point in the record. It's not it's not just like you know Billy Corgan writing all the songs or right. Kurt Cobain or you know all that stuff. And another, other than a few like vocal notes, there's not a lot of difference in the songwriting. Like, not that that's a bad that. thing, yeah. but it's an incredibly consistent record. Yeah, yeah. I that's could not great. call which which one would write. I tried doing that and I couldn't. So that's cool. And that's part of what makes the record, I think, so cool. In that the, you know, the um, the keys, the tempos, the chord progressions there's similarities there there's a theme to it there's a a concept around you know what the band should sound like so when you consider that it isn't just one person writing those songs it's actually three that's even more impressive because typically if you have three people writing songs you you kind of get three different styles of songwriting and then you hold it together with the sound of the band but they actually keep the sound of the band consistent and they have three songwriters who write consistently so you get in a variety you know, but without it, but with it still very much holding together in terms of a a, a distinct sound. It's got to be a rarity in rock having three different singer songwriters in the same group. I mean, I can't even think of one, another one. So, I mean, maybe Sonic the Youth. Beatles. The Beatles. Oh, the Beatles. <laughs> the, the... Oh, yeah, those guys. Kiss. <laughs> now you're going yeah. underground on me. <laughs> hey, speaking of Kiss, a funny thing I just saw researching this. Did you know that Gene Simmons... Uh, sent a letter to Geffen because he owns the right to the money bag icon. Yeah, and uh, they didn't want to. They didn't want to get into it, so they just sent him a check. I guess that's I in his book. I forgot about though. that. <laughs> yeah, he he had a record label at this time that, and the logo for the record label was essentially a similar graphic to what's on the cover of this record. So it was a money bag with a with an S on it, dollar sign S. And uh, he, he is very litigious, so. <laughs> Which I did want to talk about this album cover, WTF. Like, what, it, like, from a design point of view, this is like, it breaks Idiots. every rule. Yes. It, it, like, it looks like it was made on a computer in 1991. Um, <laughs> like, paint? Microsoft painters. <laughs> yeah. Compositionally, you know, the, I'm going to nerd out from a design standpoint here. Compositionally, like the bag being centered and so close to the border is like the first thing you learn not to do in design school. <laughs> like <laughs> it breaks every possible rule, but in a weird way, I guess it works because it's very memorable. Like whenever this is like, you know, when you're flipping through stacks of, of records or whatever, you're going through a music site. When you see this, out of your periphery, like you immediately identify, oh, that's the Teenage Fan Club album. Right. So in that way it works, but like <laughs> it's so ridiculous it almost seems like it was it's bad on purpose. Maybe that was the point. Who knows? It's I hope. uh 
I'd be curious. Uh, I don't know who the designer was, if it was, uh, you know, somebody in the band or if they hired someone to do that. But that's uh, we could probably do a whole show just on album covers. Of uh, you could yeah. uh, uh, landmark album or memorable. I want to say landmark. So let me ask you guys this retrospect: Did Spin make a mistake, or? Is this actually worthy of being the album of 1991? Uh, Andy, I'll let you take that one first. Yeah, they made a mistake. <laughs> yep. But it's all good. I mean, they there was a lot of competition. There's a lot of good stuff in that year. But I, I'd have to give it to Nevermind. Just the cultural impact on the entire world. And we're still feeling it, you know, almost 30 years later. You know, it's just it's ridiculous what impact Nirvana had on pop culture and Teenage Fan Club, not so much, but I also like uh, I like obscure albums. I like weird albums. I like, you know, uh, stuff that not a lot of people know about. And then you turn on your friend to this album. Now they're fans. It's kind of that's a fun thing about it that you can't do with Nevermind. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, would you a... have gone with Use Your Illusions one and two? Well, yeah. it's tough. No. Well, I do like those <laughs> records, but it's tough to say. Um... From a cultural impact standpoint, it's like, wow, yeah. I mean, there's so many, you know, half of this list has had, a, obviously, a much bigger impact. I mean, from number 20, you know, there's a whole album on here. Um, Guns N' Roses. Don Seal. Fleming produced that whole album, actually, which is weird. Oh, well, wait a minute. A noisy Seal? Album. Yeah. <laughs> Seal had a... Well, then that's, that should have been the album of the year. There's some <laughs> weird ones on here. There's uh, Urge Overkill, Supersonic Storybook. It's a great one. Yeah. Um, Massive Attack, PM Dawn, Dangerous, Public, Public Enemy, Robin Hitchcock. So you know, there's some more up, you know, obviously obscure records on here as well. That is um, my favorite Public Enemy album, Apocalypse '91. Nice. Go. So, uh, obviously. Is it the best? I mean, it's such a subjective thing. You know what I mean? So I don't even know what their criteria is for when they're making this list. Like if they're trying to say like this is going to have the biggest cultural impact or if it this is the most important in terms of influence. I mean, I think this band did influence a lot of other bands. I think Sloan probably, you know, was influenced by them because if you listen to the first Sloan record, it, it doesn't really sound like this. At least my memory, my memory of the first record doesn't sound like this, but... Their middle era stuff very much sounds like this. Mm-hmm. Um, they got way more pop oriented and kind of got less noisy. Um, you know, I like know how about Matthew. this? Like, uh, like the editor of Spin. Maybe he it was like a perfect storm of he breaks up with his girlfriend. He uh, you know goes out for a night on the town. He comes home to the new uh, teenage fan club album he hadn't heard before, and it all just it fits right you know and then mm-hmm. uh it's it's time to make that pick a week later and it's fresh in his mind and that's that's what he went with maybe maybe it's something personal like that i don't know we'll, we'll go with uh, that and they're, they're probably doing the we talked about the nme thing tim and i've talked about this in the past where like part of their thing is they try to guess who's going to be big and then they try to make them big so that they can be the place that says oh we made that band big <laughs> we told you they were going to be big so there's a little bit of like them trying to you know, gain the system a little bit and and to like be able to take credit Arctic for it. So I, I bet. Some, <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. I'm I'm sure there's some of that going on too. So. Oh, but I think Teenage Fan Club had the songs yeah. to to back it up. 
where I don't think that Arctic monkeys have. Oh, oh quite... sure. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a significant record, you know, I, I, could, does it deserve to be in the top 20 of 1991? Probably. Um, but uh, number one is kind of a, a stretch when you've got Nirvana, never mind. And even that, like that Soundgarden record, I mean, you could even make the case that, I mean, how many are the pumpkins? I mean, those three records alone, how many other bands did those influence? I mean, to be honest with you, Metallica's Metallica album. I mean, geez, like I hate a lot of modern rock music, but with that off that record, there's like thousands of hit songs that are been on the radio for the last ten years that probably don't ever happen if that Metallica album doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So you're so, saying if we get a time geez. machine and stop that record from being released, uh, there's no there's no hinder yeah. or the, or there's no. Uh, uh, what what's that? Bodies hit the floor, <laughs> like those types of bands. Yep. Drowning absolutely, pools. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, think about it. They took they took you know a form of music that had no no chance of being on the radio, and they figured out a formula where you could you know you could do that, and that is the blueprint that all of those bands have used since then and continue to use. You know, and if that doesn't happen, and Kurt Cobain doesn't die. I think music looks dramatically different than it does right now. At least, you know, hard, at least hard rock radio. Right. Or, you know, alternative rock radio. We'll call that alternate universe number 4,080. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, imagine a world that, what, what the world would look like if the PM Dawn album didn't come out. <laughs> hey, exactly the same. <laughs> your, your life would be a lot exactly. less good if set adrift on memory bliss was not a part of it so you just watch yourself that, that just was really just spanned off ballet yeah. well, <laughs> that was a that was a big deal that was a big deal uh all right let's let's talk about our ratings i mean i guess it's kind of we're all praising the record and stuff like that there are there were a couple songs i have to say you know i didn't i didn't care for track two satan i just i i more so with the placement of it on the record that it's track yeah. two. Um, but in going back, uh, I know a lot of people love the song Alcoholiday, but that was, I found like to be the weakest, one of the weakest songs on the record. Um, even though I like the title of the song.
I'm wondering if there were any weak spots uh, for you guys, or if you're pretty much like this is a classic front to start record. Andy, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think like December is not really too memorable for me. It's just kind of like a lumbering riff. I am a huge fan of Alcoholiday, though, even though it's just the same riff uh, repeated for five minutes. It, they just have a lot of momentum. You know, the drummer's just keeping it going, and uh, it seems to build a fire as it goes on. Um, Metal Baby is probably my favorite. It's really catchy. It's straight out of the early Beatles albums. Mm-hmm. Star Sign's amazing. Um, I Don't Know, same same type of deal. A Weezer influence, too, on some of these. I think uh, a Rivers Cuomo might have been yeah. checking these yeah. guys out before he uh, yep. you know, formed Weezer. And it's funny, you mentioned three yeah. songs all written by three different people. <laughs> and I couldn't tell, so. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to touch on that Weezer point. So what I think is really interesting is, okay, you know, we can go down the road of why wasn't this album more successful, right? I mean, Spin Names it the best album here. It's pop music. It's not like this was some kind of experimental, you know, difficult album. This is them, you know, band writing pop songs and like major music media paying attention to them. So why doesn't it work? I go back to part of that to me is, is, is production. And part of it is if you look at a band like Weezer who, I think it's safe to say probably was a fan of this record. They took that and they combined it with a sound that was way more palatable, I think, for people with the big guitars and the it was just it's thicker, it's bigger. It like it sounds, you know, it kind of in you know, the sound of that band, at least those first couple of records, like engulfs you. And I think back to my point about this record is it kind of doesn't necessarily do that or at least not right away you got to spend some time with it you got to you know turn it up loud you got to you know get into the the songs a little bit more and they you know i think to tweezer's credit kind of took parts of this formula and figured out a way by on purpose or not to you know make it more i think mainstream and palatable for people um in terms of my take on the record i think the only songs that really i think are you know, throwaway or Satan. Um, the last track is this music, which to me sounds like a cure demo. <laughs> it's like got the, the drum machine and like, you know, like super melodic guitar part over top of it. Um, I don't know where that, you know, it's interesting for, you know, the first 30 seconds and that's like, okay. Right. Um, but other than that, I, I, I enjoy the rest of the record. Going back to contrast and dynamics, the Weezer's first album, you know, you have uh, Surf Wax America, which is like the Beach Boys. You got Say It Ain't So, which is like Sam Cooke or something like that. whole bunch of different styles and feelings. And this album, as we said, it's kind of one feeling for an hour. Mm-hmm. And while they're yep. both awesome in their own right, I can definitely see how that's more palatable, more easy to sell when there's a bunch of different feelings going on at the same, at, on one mm-hmm. album. Plus, you had Rico Kasich guiding that band. Yeah, yeah, and That's... they had that was a huge, huge, important part of that record. So it was produced. It was the right production for that music, and that right. can't, that's kind of what I'm getting at with this band. It's like I'm not quite sure if this production was the right production for this set of songs in this band. So yeah, and hey, man, people like big. People like big guitars, and Weezer's got, <laughs> Weezer's got big guitars and big drums, too. So 
Like, how about this? Are you guys uh, fans or are you familiar with any of their other records, Teenage Fan Club? Just from cursory listening, not, not that I would be able to name. I know the song Fallen from the uh, Judgment Night soundtrack. <laughs> nice. With De La Soul. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, I know oh, 13. Yeah. Like the, They had a weird follow-up album to this one, which uh, sold like ridiculously less and was uh, – a lot of skewering of grunge music and the whole alternative thing through lyrics and song titles. Like, they didn't want to be a part of it. And it, it kind of bit them in the ass. But I, I'm also a fan of those weird follow-up albums like Pinkerton to Weezer, just bringing them up again. You know? Yep. Yeah, I tend to like those records, too. And I had spent some time with 13, I think, when it came out, but I haven't gone back. What? So I'm looking through their you know, pretty much full discography here on Spotify. Do you have a point of view on if, you know, I was going to invest in another one of their records, which one would be the best one to go to after this? I'd say Grand Prix is pretty amazing. Um, okay. That one and 13 are probably the best. I'm I'm unfamiliar with pretty much any other ones. I, I think I listened to their brand new one or their one from a year or two ago. But it just it seemed like they were kind of treading water a little bit. Um, but yeah, a Grand Prix is a good listen. A lot of uh, bird sounds on there, like the band The Birds, you know? Oh, okay. I remember songs from Northern Britain getting a lot of love because I think it was the time of like Travis and uh, Oasis. Yeah. And... yeah, that's when I saw them and they were, uh, yeah, pretty impeccable live. So. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I think that uh, it gives us a good. Uh, ending point with uh, Teenage Fan Club and their uh, legendary album, Bandwagon-esque. More so for its history than for its album sales. But and for the album cover? Yeah. Yes, and for its uh, <laughs> dis- designer-inducing uh, raged uh, uh, album cover. Um, I want to remind people that uh, they can, of course, go to uh, digmeoutpodcast.com, request a review page to request an album, and they should hit up our iTunes page for uh, leaving us some feedback on uh, our episodes. And I want to remind everybody, they, they need to go to uh, Andy Dare, com to listen to our guests' podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to ask you guys... Um... I just recently on my latest episode interviewed like the director of the new movie about Silkworm. You guys familiar with Silkworm being nineties guys? Yeah, I, I've I think I've listened to all their stuff over the years. Uh, I haven't gone back to revisit them because I I knew we were going to get to them eventually, so I kind of wanted to be fresh when I went back and revisited nice. it. But I haven't. Uh, um, well, yeah, I'd like probably... to give a plug to uh, their new movie, couldn'tyouwait.com. It's an incredible movie. It's it's done so well. Um, it makes you really care about this band. There's awesome interviews with Steve Albini, Steve Malcolmus from Pavement, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, and uh, just a really cool story, real nice down-to-earth guys. And, uh, yeah, now I'm getting back into them. I'm a big fan now. So, uh yeah, it's kind of a sad story. Their drummer got killed in a hit and run or something like that in 2005, so they they put it to bed pretty much. But they were around for 18 years, something like 10 albums, and uh, yeah, another one of those unheralded bands that I, I dig listening to. So check that out and check out my show, theandydareshow.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, for joining us, Andy. And uh, Thank you. Yeah. And everybody, thanks for listening. And... I think that's it. That's a wrap. We'll be back 
next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.